You're listening to Flipping Tables on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Hey, welcome to episode 85. That is, uh, is that 15 times? No, it's not 15 times anything, is it? <laughs> not at all. Um, you got the wrong audience for that. <laughs> it's like 17 times 5, maybe? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> um, basically, arithmetic tables every week. Here is our, our topic on flipping tables. No, I'm one of your hosts, Michael Edwards. And I am David Lyons, who used Spotlight Search to confirm it is 17 times 5. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> No Alfred for you anymore. All right, we got some follow-up this week. Um, we we actually had some technical difficulties that destroyed some of our lovely conversation last week. Um, we were going on and on and on and on and on about flat design and uh, kind of having that debate that everyone had two years ago, but we decided with some <laughs> hindsight, you know, we've been immersed in a post-skeuomorphic world, and uh, some of our discussion got destroyed by Skype slash OS ten slash we don't know what happened. Um, but some of our conversation got garbled up, including one of the favorite things I said. Um, <laughs> and that is that one of the areas of UI that remains a playful place that gets to be skeuomorphic or anything at once, really, um, is games and the UI for games. There, I can't think of games that weren't part of the same series that had the same UI. Um, you get vibrant backgrounds, you get... The, the pointer selector represents some object from the game. There's clever animations between everything. And not that I would want my, you know, Microsoft Office to be that way. You don't, you don't want to change the font by having the Pip-Boy come up in front of you? <laughs> no. Like, oh, I, I want Arial. Thank you. In spite of that, I still appreciate the fact that games remain a place where designers get to play with the interaction. Yeah, I think it also feels like... I'm it's like when you go to a movie or a play and you suspend your disbelief so you can be immersed in the world. So like in Fallout, like you literally raise your arm in front of your face, like where you can see not just that it's the Pip Boy screen, but like your hand and part of your forearm. So it's it's very like hyper skeuomorphic, but you you'd like, yeah, that's my arm, because I'm <laughs> supposed to be the one wearing the Pip Boy. But if I open Microsoft Word and I got to the bottom of the page and it made like the return register noise on a typewriter. <laughs> I would just be like, no, my goal here uh-uh. is to is to type words, not to simulate a typewriter. Yeah. Like in a video game, I'm trying to simulate flying a plane or driving a car or shooting terrorist insurgents or whatever. <laughs> Do you remember when that was kind of a thing? Maybe it was like around Windows 98 and like oh Mac OS 8 or something when it was like we added sound effects. And when oh, you yeah. clicked on the scroll bar, it like clicked and like made like a stock ticker noise and like, no, turn that off. Why are you doing that? Stop it. <laughs> well, I think, and I mean, we, we, I think this part of the discussion did make it through the shenanigans last week, but I think part of it was at first they had to set expectations for how these things were going to behave, what objects in your life you were replacing with these new digital equivalents. So I, I understand why a lot of those decisions were originally made, but I can't still accept that argument. Like we are, we are beyond the point where 
older people who grew up without those things still need those like simulacrums. And we're well into the point where there's just whole generations that have grown up with it and do not need a simulacrum at all. Like they just understand through exposure what the thing does, not what it was replacing an older version of. So I'm happy to say that old and young tech savvy and otherwise, like we can all just stop having green felt backgrounds in our game center. (laughs) Um, the other point about UI, we had some follow-up, was our, our Twitter and designer friend Mark Mueller um, shared with me a, a good article about uh, material design versus iOS 7 and onward um, to kind of maybe set a little more nuance to some of the things we were saying. And his big point was not that he loves iOS or hates material design, not at all, but that there's context sensitive and that someone who's been using Android for years will have a different experience than someone who's brand new to the platform or vice versa. And uh, that, that obviously plays a lot into how someone uses a UI, but also that um, both OSs have skeuomorphism, just not green felt and wood so much anymore, but there's physics to the way things animate. There's drop shadows, there's inertia. And I mean, you know, you can argue these are good forms of, um, skeuomorphism that you know help you anticipate what's happening, help you understand what happened, um, know what's possible with these different objects, and so uh, that'd be another thing to say is even if we hate the green felt, um, behaving like some real world things is not a good or bad thing inherently, and it can be a good thing sometimes. Yeah, and I mean I would argue that until we have a direct. Uh, interface with the computer something i mean like matrix style direct brain manipulation anything you do is translating an analog motion into a digital representation so you you move the mouse or you move your finger on the glass or the trackpad or whatever but you're still physically moving so if movement wasn't represented in the interface that would probably be confusing because you're like, I'm creating movement, but movement isn't happening. And you could say the same for, you know, keyboards and styli. And I mean, all these things, they all have some physical component. So you expect some sort of visual response, just like if I push, you know, the return, the slide on a typewriter, like I can see it physically move. If I hit return on a keyboard, I may only see the little blinky cursor move, but it moves in a predictable way. It goes where I expect because of this physical representation. So it's, I don't know how you would get rid of that. Like if things like motion count as skeuomorphism, like, yeah, (laughs) I guess, I guess we're stuck, but I like now he, I mean, he's a professional. So we're now so far out of my expertise (laughs) on design that I'm just like, that sounds neat. Yeah. Um, Tell us about your Apple mouse experience. (laughs) Are you still using it? So fuck the Apple mouse. Uh, Fuck it in its stupid face. I'm so, I couldn't spend another, my hand, dude. I just, oh my God. Like my tendons (laughs) were killing me. And then what was really busting my chops more than anything else is I would be using this stupid thing and then the Bluetooth connection would depair or disconnect or whatever you call it. And then, 
my I would tense up my hand because now I'm angry. <laughs> so now like the tendons <laughs> are screaming even more in agony. So just yeah, fuck the Apple Mouse. I took the batteries out and used them to power up one of my daughter's toys that was starting to go. <laughs> it's back in the box in like a closet where I will if it wasn't if it was mine, I would take it back to the store. But it's work, so it's gonna just sit in a drawer until I can bring it back to my office. But I will say that my my beautiful Logitech mouse, you see it? Oh, so uh, I do. Listeners, like you see that? Future looking. Yeah, they. I linked to it in the show notes so people can go and buy it for themselves because it's great. There are two things, though. One cool thing I didn't know about and one crappy thing I should have been prepared for. So if you remember, when you and I were talking about this, you said, oh, is it Bluetooth or does it use the stupid Logitech dongle? And then you were like, oh, it's both. That's amazing. That's like the right way to solve that problem. Yeah. Turns out OS ten does not love the Bluetooth in this mouse. Great. So I actually do have the dongle plugged in and it's been working great. Um, for just a minute, I was like, oh, maybe I should just buy a wired version. And then I was like, why? Because I'm still losing exactly one USB port. So there's <laughs> not a lot. And this has a, a built-in rechargeable battery. So there isn't a tremendous amount of incentive to uh, side grade to the wired version. Um, but the cool thing is I didn't – so uh, you'll be able to see this if you check out the the link in our show notes at sunriserobot.net slash flipping table slash 85 and look for the Logitech MX but you can see like this little section over here where your thumb rests. Yeah. Yeah. That's called a gesture button, which was not a thing I knew was a thing. And when you hold that down and then move the mouse, it simulates trackpad actions. Oh, that's cool. It's kind of neat. And there, it's like a soft rubber button. So it takes a certain amount of force. So you can't really press it by accident because um, your thumb is just like resting on it all the time. Um, but you can customize them and you can say like, I want the swipey gesture to do this, or I want it to switch desktops, or I want it to do back and forward in the browser or whatever. So it's, it's actually pretty neat. I've, I've only been using it for a day and I know when I was only using the shitty, shitty, shitty Apple mouse for a day, <laughs> I was pretty happy with it. But this, my main concern with the Apple mouse was the crippling hand problems. This doesn't have that. So we are bleepiest episode ever. I mean, our, our <laughs> fuckiest episode ever. There you go. So now we will now return to our regularly scheduled PG-13. Uh, um, you, th- you threw one more bit of follow-up in here. I did. Uh, so this, uh, we were talking about 3D touch, 4C touch time with the, the new um, iPhones. And <laughs> it occurred to me, having not used it on the Apple Watch, and I'm not, I obviously haven't used it on an iPhone, is there an accessibility issue here where I'm getting visual feedback based on a physical input that I can't see if I have like a visual visual acuity problem? So that was about all the, the thought I put into it. And I kind of wanted to ask your opinion. And you apparently found like an amazing article that talks about <laughs> this exact thing. So, so this writer has visual and motor issues. So he was this article is mostly speculating. He hasn't used 3D touch. So disclaimer right up front. This is... Not not even anecdotal, I guess you would say. This is speculative. <laughs> um, but he actually was bullish on it. He was like, this is going to help me, not hurt me. And the reasons are the haptic feedback. So even though there's a visual component and there's a, a force, pre- forcey fun time press component <laughs> to this, um, he thought um, having visual issue, issues, um, not issues, <laughs> um, <laughs> that 
Um, the haptic feedback would help him distinguish buttons from non-interactive elements that it, it could, you know, basically by the, the little jolt to tell him, oh, that that's actually a thing. Um, and uh, But he was still like, you know, I, I need to see what happens when I use it. But he seemed to think that it would also reduce the number of taps to do things. Um, if by going into that force press forcey fun time menu, um, <laughs> he, he could get to say, for example, he 3d touches his camera, chooses selfie, and now he is ready to take a selfie. He doesn't have to launch camera, f- wait for it to load, find the little flip to front camera button. And then I don't know, that sounds like a similar number of taps, but <laughs> <laughs> um, at least but he someone to- who actually has to live with this thinks it's a good idea. Yeah, that's the main thing. Um, I would be surprised if Apple didn't do their homework on the accessibility because that's something they've been really good at historically. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely wasn't trying to call out Apple specifically. It was more like we had talked about how the more inputs you have, the ones that are less discoverable end up becoming shortcuts to the ones that are more discoverable, like keyboard shortcuts versus, you know, a mouse click in the menu. And it just made me kind of wonder like, Oh, how would this work if I couldn't, because I'm, I'm fortunate. I don't have motor and and visual problems. So I was like, I don't even know would like, would that be better? Would it be worse? Would I love it? And like always use those shortcuts and never do it. So it, it sounds like, someone who actually has these issues is looking forward to playing with it. Well, so I also cool. wonder if like for, you know, you imagine that the, the context menu, if you want to call it basically a, a version of right click that you're doing on an app, um, most apps are going to list the most common thing you would do in that little list. Like Facebook's going to be post or add, you know, share a picture. It's going to be like things like that. And that could almost um, simplify your interface to most apps. Because every single app has its own UI, its own icons, its own different format of where the buttons are. And if you became more reliant on, no, I'm just going to go to the icon for the app and say, I want to do the thing. Um, <laughs> and this this menu will have text. It'll be labeled really well. Selfie. Okay, that's what I want to do. Um, and so maybe it'll be an advantage. But again, for the specific population where pressing hard is going to be a problem, yeah, this feature may not help those people much they they're gonna have to rely on the other kinds of accessibility yeah i guess the alternative though if uh for someone who pressing lightly is an issue if pressing hard gets you directly to here's the three most common things that could be beneficial you know like if if you want to open facebook and then post but you have to do like four taps or you can you know, force press on the icon and then just immediately press on post, that might actually be helpful. Or if you have like RSI issues or no, I'm, I'm, I'm open to this. I think this could be cool. Now I hate, I hate trying to name these things because 3d touch is unambiguously a worse, less descriptive name to me. Like what the hell does that mean? (laughs) But I understand why they don't want to call it force touch. (laughs) Yeah. I'll accept 3d touch as a, um, it's. I don't feel like it's a particularly descriptive name, but it's like a brand name. It's like <laughs> Retina. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly like that. Like I hear people say, like, "Oh, does this Android phone have a Retina display?" And I just want to be like, "No Android phone has ever had a Retina display." <laughs> just like no Lenovo monitor has a Retina display, <laughs> nor will it ever probably. But I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you have any density. Kleenex? No, but we have tissues. Yeah, and you can't correct people on the Kleenex because you just seem like a jackass. Like, come on! Like, <laughs> I just sneezed. And I need. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the time. Snot's falling everywhere. Yeah. Shall we get to our real show? I think we shall. All right. We have a tiny little topic before the, the big blustering topic of the entire internet. We, I guess we're going to talk about, um, first off the, I guess it's related in terms of things being tracked and data. And that's, uh, we have confessions of a free to play developer or producer. And, uh, I found this article, I was reading, I was like, well, of course, like the, the, the game is free. They got to be making money somehow. But the more I read of this, the more I was like, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had pretty much that same feeling, not just from what they're doing, but his like attitude toward it. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, yeah, of course, that's what we're doing. Well, in his description of like the, the way the companies went from the game design kind of still remaining a thoughtful creative enterprise to find the whales, find the whales that will buy in app purchases or will be, you know, data hounds for us. Like, and just how the, the analytics fever kind of overtook the casual free to play industry. Whereas it's everything you think of it. Like I, we've been complaining on the show for a long time about crappy games that are clearly just designed to make you spend money to speed up the development of that factory or get another try at that impossible level that you or a can't thousand actually. gems <laughs> yeah and uh it's like yep 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 and more than you thought yep <laughs> that's what we're doing <laughs> <laughs> well the thing that blew my mind about this was not just uh the the data that they're collecting but the volume of it also so like their attitude was surprising and the volume was really surprising because he said, uh, where is it, um, that they on an average day are collecting like 10 or more gigs of player data. And <laughs> he said, it says in parentheses something like, uh, there's another producer out there reading this laughing because his app generates 100 or more gigs. Yeah. I was just like, ah, I thought 10 gigs was terrifying. What are you talking about 100? And these games have 20 or 30 third-party SDKs built into them that track all sorts of game events and crashes and networks and, and anything they can glean about your device. And I mean, to be fair, the Google and Apple are clamping down on this a bit the way apps can kind of just mine um, what's on your system and what else is installed. Um, but still, they have ways. <laughs> Well, and so this the larger topic we're going to, I think you and I really want to discuss is about the this glut of like content blockers with iOS 9 and the larger conversation around the web and people using ad blockers. And so that, there's just, there's so many things that tie into even just the specific realm of, of gaming. But do you feel like, I feel like one of the issues, one of the common things that I see is like a, a, a false dichotomy is whether or not something is opt-in or if it was done for you. So uh, the example of that is when you click on a link, like if, if you share a link on Twitter and I click on it and that page loads and there's a billion trackers and ad networks and stuff that are shady, I didn't 
choose to look at those. Like I didn't know that 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 was going to happen. Right. Yeah. Whereas with like Facebook and everybody always says Facebook, I I feel a little bit bad for them. They're the constant whipping boy in this conversation. (laughs) But with Facebook, like before you even get an account, you know, Oh, I'm, this is the information I'm giving away. Even if you don't understand it, you didn't read the terms of service. Like, yeah, it is. There's a ritual there. (laughs) Right. So you do have to, even if you do it really half-assedly volunteer, you know, to be a part of this machine. Whereas with like the openness of the web, it is totally random. Some sites are all SSL and have no ads and no trackers. Other sites are like tracking nightmares like the verge. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I think that's part of the dichotomy that and ad blockers and content blockers, of course, do not make that distinction. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is uh, the websites that have all these trackers aren't, it's not like, you know, the Verge's senior editor has curated a stack of, <laughs> you know, content. Bespoke, uh, yeah. Portland made <laughs> handcrafted trackers. It's a nice seven course meal of tracking you. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's just loaded in. We need to make money. These people will pay us per impression. Like, it's just kind of gotten to this insane orgy of load them up, boys. Here we go. And I think that's sort of what people are reacting. At least the nerd community is kind of like, all right, enough. I'm sick of this. Like, maybe I don't have a right to free content. We can hash all these arguments out about who has rights to what. Most people don't have rights to anything in this arena. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that's something I'd say is I recognize that this shitty business model um, is why I get free articles from almost everywhere. Um, I also recognize that it seems like that model is kind of dying in some ways, regardless of ad blocking. But I I get it. Like if I participate by using content blockers and if enough people are like me, that eventually a lot of publications are going to die. Adapt or die. Some people are saying really excitedly, like, come on, adapt or die. But you know, I'd be sad to see 90% of the sites I go to die because they can't, they can't pay their writers because they don't have income. Um, and maybe in five years, we'll kind of be sad, like, oh, we killed, you know, we, we killed the evil beast, but we also killed everyone we loved along the way. <laughs> um, but right now, I'm, I'm more just annoyed. Like, there's got to be a better balance. Like, can we, can we get somewhere healthier? And it seems like a couple of years ago, you remember Microsoft was going to have do not track on by default. And the entire ad business industry was just like, we're not going to pay attention to that setting at all if you do that. Yeah, which like, is <laughs> weird that that's how these conversations play out. Like, hey, we're going to do something to uh, support the users and that the ad companies can just be like, no. <laughs> because that's really what's happening here. We're we're talking far more about a battle of morals than laws. Like most of this is still kind of ethereal. Like, well, you know, it's not really legal or illegal. You're just kind of yeah. whatever. And so it's like, you know, whatever way we go right now is steered almost entirely by like our morals and what we believe in, but not like ad blockers are not illegal and ad trackers are not illegal. Like all of that, even though they are diametrically opposed are both completely acceptable in the eyes of the law. And I definitely see some differences of opinion on what ad blocking constitutes as far as a user action. Cause I've seen the, the ad industry kind of, 
portrays that is I broke into the store and stole all the magazines. And, you know, it's kind of the you wouldn't download a car, kind of all that nonsense. I Whereas would, yes. I think most users view it as there was there were commercials on and I went to the bathroom because I don't care. And uh, I thought that would be a funny analogy, but then I actually found a TV producer or some, some TV network owner that said that is stealing content from TV when you don't <laughs> sit there and watch the commercials. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, you just got to hold it in until the wire is over and then you may go pee. So we can keep ranting about this, but actually the entire internet has been ranting about this. And maybe we can point to some places that have been having all these arguments and see if we agree much with them. So The Verge had their big editorial, um, and it was, Welcome to Hell, Apple versus Google versus Facebook, and the slow death of the web. Not hyperbolic at all. Um, The Verge. Um, the gist of this article was, thanks a lot, ad blockers. You're ruining everything, and you're giving the world over to Facebook and Apple and Google because all us you know, hardworking journalists are going to die, and Facebook's going to own everything. And uh, I thought this was a little, little off the mark. I didn't really agree with that. Um, did you get to read this article at all? I did. And this... So... I'll just, I'll say it because I'm going to be all over the place. So I'm going to give you permission to be all over the place, but we have a lot of great articles in the show notes uh, that you can check out that we're drawing, you know, these opinions from and some of these quotes and things that, you know, we have our own thoughts to, but I, uh, reading anything like this on the verge immediately makes me think like, who said you deserve to exist verge? Like (laughs) no one. And I'm not like, I know I pick on the verge sometimes, but the, you know, everyone who's like pro free market and the invisible hand of Jesus or whoever it is that <laughs> controls markets. I don't know. I don't, I'm not an economist, but <laughs> I don't, I, I very seldom see anyone make their argument and include, we know we're a business and no one says we have a right to exist. If we can't find a sustainable business model we want the world to change around the business model we've decided to go with. And that's probably a little bit of a reductive argument, but every time I see a publisher say like, you know, well, if you block our horrible intrusive ads that track all of your data, we won't be able to exist. And it's kind of like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) find another way to live. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if, if that's the exchange, then so yeah, sorry. I mean, just like magazines that are based on subscriptions, if they can't get subscribers, then the magazine company goes out of business. Like that's that's the exchange. The magazine company doesn't continue to exist. Yeah, I'm wondering would magazines still exist if there weren't airplanes and airports, <laughs> waiting rooms, <laughs> yeah, waiting bad rooms. Wi-Fi. <laughs> um, yeah, probably uh, not. But this, and I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I'm I'm the huge socialist you know, I want everything to be free. I want the Star Trek future where creative people can do creative work and and they don't have to have like these shady business practices, but that's not yet the world we live in. And I think it's really kind of disingenuous for a company that is especially like the verge or, or Mashable or some of these other companies that are always being called out for the way their blog is run. Like they're supposed to be on the side of nerds and then they do all of the things geeks hate. Like yeah. there, there's later in the show notes, you've got this hilarious, uh, this guy was trying to read an article on the New York times about ad blocking and the, 
entire browser experience breaks because the ad won't let him scroll the page. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yes, we don't want to support this business model because not only is this a bad experience, this is not an experience. I can't read the article. Yeah, I, I can't even get to your content because the ad is interfering. And it wasn't just about ad blocking. It was about a supposed backlash to ad blockers. <laughs> and I was like, this is kind of in support of it, ironically. So... Um, the guy was like saying, I don't know if he actually was, but he's like, I've been pretty neutral on this debate, but dear God, this makes me <laughs> want to install a content blocker. Um, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. The, the whole like, you don't have a right to necessarily live in this space. Um, this is a negotiation of markets and forces. And one of the forces around is content blockers. And to my knowledge, those are not illegal. They may be unethical, depending on the way you view the, the transaction between a website and a reader and what the, the understanding is or isn't between these parties on what you're getting and for what reason. But they're not illegal. So this is a space that culturally we got to figure out. And it seems like right now I'm, I, I, I do understand the way the implication of, you know, blocking everything blindly. I'm going to hurt some good people that do good work that will not be able to survive in that world if everyone blocks them. And yeah, every, everyone agrees that whitelists and blacklists are not, they don't function because yeah. they require user input. So, And if you want to trust a third party, you're back to the same problem. Is that person going to be bought out so that shady website X makes it through? <laughs> right. And so uh, uh, is it Armet? How do you say his name? Marco Armet? Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, I'm, I like him. I follow uh, some of his, his work and, and I, I like the kind of stuff he posts to his blog and he shares on Twitter and use Overcast, which is his app. And yeah. he did what, Tumblr and Instapaper? Yep. Instapaper, ironically, a way of stripping content out of websites that have ads. <laughs> so that didn't, I totally forgot about that. But so he built a, a, uh, a content blocker, you know, for iOS 9 uh, called Peace. And first, he released an article saying, like, hey, I released this thing, and it works really well because I licensed this awesome content-blocking database. From Co Ghostery. Yeah, from Ghostery. And then he, like, very shortly thereafter followed that up with, yeah, you may have noticed that it also blocks the ads I use on my own website, even though those aren't, like, spammy tracker ads, and they're pretty good in terms of, like, user privacy, but I had to be consistent. Yeah. And th then he shortly thereafter was like, you know what? I don't really like this. So I took my app off the app store and here's how you can get a refund. And I'm sorry. And I don't want anything to do with this arena. Yeah. Um, he just felt grimy about it. And even though he, he still thinks it's okay to block ads in this day and age, he apparently, um, you know, I, I was reading some Reddit threads about this and they hated Marco for this. They were just like, oh, you bunch of grandstanding, you got a bunch of attention and then you pull it and then now you're above it all. And um, they just kind of, didn't see this in a favorable light. Oh, and no. <laughs> <laughs> the internet was not happy with him over this. Well, and the thing that this really brought to the this whole, like, because this all happened in, like, 36 hours or something. Like, it was super fast. And, like, his app was number one. And I think the last time I checked, like, several of the top 10 apps in the iOS app store are content blockers. So, I mean, this this is a thing. People are taking notice of this space. Uh, in larger quantities than I think they did with web browsers because on mobile you have to worry about battery and data and, and battery and also battery. So like having all this additional web traffic and network stuff happening, like people are more aware of that now 
But the thing that this really brought to the forefront with me, his specific little, I don't know, odyssey, is uh, how important is the difference between ads and tracking? Because although those things are really tightly interwoven, they are not the same thing. Like when I drive down the street, they show ads to, you know, like billboard ads to people they think will be in that area. And they do have data behind those billboards. But what they don't know is that I literally saw it. Like they may know I live in this area because of like census data, but they might not know that I'm a hermit who never goes outside. So like they don't know how many people saw that billboard and like all these kinds of things we take for granted with digital advertising. So my question to all these people who are like privacy matters is like, really? So if there was no tracking and there was zero like creepy privacy stuff, but the ads were still there and they were just really poorly targeted, (laughs) would that be okay? Like would, is that an acceptable middle ground? Well, people are complaining about the tracking. They're also complaining about the impact on user experience. And that's the heavyweight, the slow loading, the breaking the page and all that. And, um, so that's the other question you could throw. If they were fast and you know sleek and didn't impact your reading experience, would we be <laughs> in this place? Well, I think anything that's user hostile, like like the this this hilarious video, the guy literally cannot scroll on his iPad. But so something like that, like I don't think that's debatable. Like that's broken, right? Yeah. If you try to open uh, an article and the entire screen fills with an ad and there's no X or the X is like incredibly small and it's almost the same shade as the ad. And so also you like, trigger the ad anyway when you try to click the X. <laughs> right. So like those things, those are bad design. Like that's, even if that was content, like that would still be bad design. Well, I so think the, that's kind of less that, debatable to me. Like those things need to change, period. But that speaks to the, the ugly situation we're in where website owners let their product go to crap because they're hooked up like a drug IV to this <laughs> ad revenue. And they're just like, yeah, just do whatever you want to them. I don't care. <laughs> and like they, they aren't taking responsibility for the actual experience of their, their product. And or they're neglecting it, and so I—that's you know—that's something I would never want to be part of. Is just like, well, I'm really proud of that article I wrote, but there's also a little guy that sits next to them while they try to read it and punches them in the head the whole time. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but that guy pays me a little bit for every person that reads it, so I'm gonna let him punch you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will not buy ads from your network, Mike. <laughs> sounds awful. But I mean, this, so this is my my question is. I know design is a complicated, nuanced thing, and there's never going to be a hundred percent agreement. But if it breaks the content or makes the content inaccessible, or while you're reading the page, it's just draining your battery, or it's firing stuff off to your network connection and and using your data, like those things, we can pretty much agree are bad. And then we're just haggling over price. How much of those things is acceptable? Yeah. You know, maybe it's none, but maybe a little bit is acceptable, but not as much as we're doing. So I, f- I feel like there's a, a tiny bit less of a debate there, but you're, you're right. It's still questionable. But I really do wonder because there are uh, ad networks like the deck and um, I can't remember the name. Of the yeah, other so one. the it might deck, be Archer. Just to praise the deck a little bit. Um, not that I think it's something that can scale, but maybe that speaks to their attention to detail to find a niche where they can thrive. The deck serves up plain images they don't track anything they work with small successful websites that have clear audiences already and they advertise to those audiences 
And so there may be data involved, but not from the Dex ad. It's not adware itself. And people seem happier with that approach. Well, I, re- I read Daring Fireball. I'm probably interested in Apple-related services. Right. And so here we're really we're slowly getting toward the ultimate question I want to pose to you, which is, can you have advertising in a complete absence of tracking? And when I say complete, I mean, you know nothing about the audience. You can only make suppositions. So like you just said it, like you read Daring Fireball, you probably want to read about Apple stuff, but they don't know anything else about you and even that is suspect maybe you read daring fireball because you're just john gruber's buddy and you just want to give him page views but the the targeted ads um i don't there's there's some ads that they they want to know everything about me and somehow they knew i bought a suit that i looked at sufjan concerts and they want to sell me tickets to the concert i already paid for over and over again everywhere i go buy sufjan i already did stop it (laughs) um but there's other kind of ads like this new tv series is starting and they don't really care who i am maybe they care that i'm you know 18 to 35 male but for the most part, it's like, no, this is the Steve Jobs movie. We want everyone to know about it. And, you know, fuck you and your reading experience. We're going to plaster this everywhere and break articles and everything. And, you know, I, I don't think most, I don't know, maybe most advertising is trying to be really targeted, but there, there are kinds of ad, ads that aren't that way. But you bring up an interesting point, And I think this relates to the smartest thing I feel like I read on this whole topic. And this was... Uh, I think his name's Ben. I forget his last name off the top of my head. His, his site is called Stratechery. And uh, he wrote an article called Popping the Publishing Bubble. And he kind of gets out of the ethical debate of to block or not to block and the ethics of ads and tracking and more just wants to make an econo- economic argument about what has changed. What are the market forces going on here? And so in the pre-internet era, um, publishers and advertisers were really well aligned. Um, get the biggest audience you can. Publishers get paid. Advertisers get to reach their audience. That's awesome. The internet's kind of destroyed this. Um, it's destroyed this in a couple of ways. Um, in the previous era, there was a limited ad inventory. There's only 24 hours in a day for TV and radio. There's only so many shows and so many channels. So that's already that scarcity means the price of advertising can go up because there's premiums on time. Um, with newspapers and stuff, you, you have readers that have been curated by a good publication that people want to pay for. So you have these, these forces that make advertising something that can cost something. The can internet... I, I, I need to interject. Just one thing is this all still, I feel like, plays to if you have a specific kind of show or a specific kind of magazine, you either actually have or believe you have knowledge about the person on the other end of that transaction and what kinds of things they would want to buy, like products or services, if you somehow, if you were completely isolated in, in a bubble, you had no idea that people watching the Super Bowl were also football fans, and you had like a, a picture of what a football fan was like, how would you know to market Doritos and Bud Light? You, yeah. you would be like, I don't know if people who watch the Super Bowl like those things, because we know nothing about this consumer. Well, I think this will play into some of his points later. So as to why advertisers and publishers are no longer aligned. Um, so um, the internet has kind of destroyed this because there's unlimited advent inventory. There's just unlimited. You can advertise as much as you want 
anywhere. Um, the number of views and, and there, there's no restriction or scarcity on the channels, which means that the price of ads has gone down towards zero. This is just basic economics. Um, the other thing is, uh, he, he makes the point, readers and potential customers are no longer the same person. Um, because that's all you had, like you just said. You don't know. You're just kind of like, well, you have a bunch of readers, and they're, they're our potential customers because you're our channel to reach them. The Internet has separated that. And you can advertise directly to people through social networks and all these other arenas that has nothing to do with what they pay for, what they're subscribed to, or any of these things. You don't need a publication to reach customers. You don't need a TV channel to reach customers. So advertisers never cared about the content of the publishers. They only cared about their ability to hoard a bunch of people and gather their attention. And so <laughs> this is why they're no longer aligned and advertisers can find their own way. And if publishers die, well, we have, our, we have another way to reach people. So who cares? And so that's kind of... That's where The Verge crying about this. They may be right. They may be like, you're going to kill us, and actually advertisers are going to be fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But you know, the, in this article, it's very well written. I definitely recommend checking it out for the full detail. I'm probably misrepresenting some of it. But what options do publishers have in this new reality? If people adopt ad blockers and the traditional model is dying, where do you go? What can you do if you're The Verge? And his, his two, just quickly, his two points here are <laughs> you can either become a niche business where you make such a, a focused product that people are willing to pay for it. And, you know, no one covers model trains. Um, generally, The Verge is never going to talk about model trains, but this one publication is so damn good at it, I will give them $5 a month because I want to see that. Or you can try to be BuzzFeed. That's basically it. So what were you going to say? No, I was going to exactly that that last thing about serving like a specific uh, niche, 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 um, because I feel like, I mean, this all ties back to my like devil's advocate argument of like, do, do you deserve to exist? Which is someone who says like, well, I want to write about Apple full time, you know, like I, that's what I want to do. I want to be an Apple blogger and I want to do it for The Verge. Sorry, a journalist. And I want to do it for The Verge. <laughs> And then The Verge is like, well, we don't have the money to pay you because everyone uses ad blockers. And then people say like, well, but surely you could just go to a subscription model. And then it turns out that there's like 50 billion other people that also think Apple's cool and are also willing to write about Apple, maybe for no money. Well, on some are students blog. and it's not their career and they just they write really well about it, but they don't expect to make money off it. Well, guess what? There's a cheaper competition in the market. Right. And that's what I think is interesting about the Internet, particularly as some of this technology has skyrocketed in effectiveness and speed and 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 access across you know different uh, different demographics where what used to you know you had to like be a tech person and you had to have a computer because not everybody had a computer you had to have access to one like then we got like the home computing revolution but a lot of people still didn't really know what the hell they were doing and now like more people have been around them for so long or they grew up with them that Things like creating a blog or starting a website have become trivial, like absolutely drop-dead trivial. And if you're not trying to make money off of it and you have a website that doesn't suck because it's made by like a good website creator like a, a Squarespace or a blogger or a WordPress.com, that kind of thing, these are, are hyper-optimized websites because they're not charging you 
you know, they have other like pro services that they make money off of, or they have a like Squarespace has like a reasonable monthly fee. And that's where they make their money. So you can then turn around and say like, oh, well, you know, eight, five to $10 a month. Like I can just pay that out of pocket and I'll never have to worry about my server charges being crazy because I'm just serving text, which it turns out is really small. And if you, (laughs) if you don't have like crazy, beautiful high res imagery, you know, on 50 pages that you have to click through in a gallery so that 20 ads get displayed every single freaking page. And, and you don't have, like, you're not trying to produce video and do these things. Like, if you just want to write, because everyone always seems to link this back to writing. No one ever says, like, where will we get the money to produce these videos? Like, it's always just about writing. Writing is cheap. Good writing is expensive and hard and takes a lot of time. And that's why there's a difference between, like, an NPR podcast, like, uh, not wait, wait, don't tell me. That's schlock. But... I love it, but it's schlock, but like, uh, like invisibilia or, or this American life, like those are highly produced stories that have lots of journalists out like fact checking, but then like producing audio, like what we're doing is way more accessible to anyone. Like anybody can sit in front of a mic and have a conversation and share it with the world. And I think what we're seeing now is kind of the ultimate end, uh, game of, of like the democratization of content. Like if I just want to hear somebody's thoughts about the iPad Pro cuz I'm considering buying one, it doesn't need to be a specific A million sh- YouTube channels will make the beautiful videos too. <laughs> yes. But I mean even if I just want to read their thoughts, like I don't need to go to a dedicated Apple publication that's been blessed by Apple and is allowed to go to their press events. I just need to find the blog of some ass who has $1000 and bought one on release day. Like there, it's done. You don't even need the live blogs anymore because Apple just broadcasts their events. Well, if you have an Apple device, but (laughs) no. And in the Microsoft Edge browser, my friend. Oh, right, right. That was a weird thing. That was we didn't Um, even talk about that last time, but that was weird. So one other point to throw into this giant stew of opinions and and rants (laughs) is uh, sort of to talk about what kinds of advertising actually works anyway. And I think that's the other sickening layer on this disgusting cake is that <laughs> the the ads people hate the most are also really well known to be ineffective ads. We had a couple episodes ago, Google was sharing their research that, you know, interrupting someone to suggest installing a mobile app doesn't work. So they stopped doing it. Um, just just all these, these shitty, shitty ads. Um, they don't actually work. So what are we gaining? We're, we're loading up and ruining our websites. We're making people angry and um, are, are leading to this nuclear war of destroying all ads instead of being in a healthy place. And so there's an article by uh, Seth Godin that um, there's a nice quote here. Um, and he's talking about how, you know, crappy ads don't work, native ads, word of mouth, and other approaches. We know these things do work. And so that's where the industry needs to go, um, the advertorial, I guess. Um, so here's a quote from his article. Advertisers have had 15 years to show self-restraint. They've had the chance to not secretly track people, set cookies for their own benefit, insert pop-unders and pop-overs and pop-arounds, and mostly deliver us ads we actually want to see. Alas, it was probably too much to ask. And so in the face of a relentless race to the bottom, users are taking control using a sledgehammer. So I think that says it about as well as anything as to why we're here. You know, you just posed an interesting contradiction to me that I've never really thought of before. 
So the first thing we talked about specifically with gaming, these free to play games and this article is uh, terrifying and fascinating. Um, I recommend anybody who does any kind of gaming on a mobile device, check this out. Like even if all you play is bejeweled or whatever, like you need to go see this because it's scary. And he's saying that they actually collect all this data so that they can literally change the performance of the game to alter your behavior. So if you, if they notice you play less when you get to a level that's too hard, then the game will actually live change itself to dial the difficulty down to a level where they know you will keep spending money and it will continue to adjust until you keep spending money. So if you're too good at the game, it'll get harder. Right. It's like Mario Kart rubber banding, but in the most (laughs) even more evil form. Right. And, and the, you know, the end goal is to make a gameplay experience that isn't necessarily enjoyable, but one where you will spend more money. Right. Cause a lot yeah. of these Skinner boxes, if you ask someone or if you test them in, in a, a good like psychology testing sort of way, did you enjoy that? They're like, eh. But you spend a thousand dollars on it. And it's like, but you yeah. keep stuff in the Doritos in your face anyway. <laughs> right. So I, I think it's interesting that in gaming, they seem to have basically nailed this down and know and are getting better all the time and yet when you are browsing on some music website they're like hey do you want to go to that concert you already went to and you're just like no (laughs) and and i've heard this this brought up before but i do wonder if targeted ads were good would that like make people more okay with it so because then they felt like they're getting something for their data so there's some really other great points here in the Seth Godin article, and he actually has bullet point list, which um, is actually a good list here. So to, to your point, would better advertising work? Yes. Um, <laughs> he, and here's what he thinks of, of as better advertising, where the industry needs to go. He said, the best marketing isn't advertising, it's a well-designed product. Um, so having a good thing is already way ahead of the game. Um, <laughs> the best way to contact your users is by earning the privilege over time. Um, making products for your customers is more efficient than finding customers for your products. So you actually know what you're making this thing for. Um, not just, I made something, let's try to get a bunch of people to... Doesn't that it. require information about people, though? So you He's, know he, what their needs are. And well, I mean, I'm not trying to be. This guy isn't about saying this. there can't be information about people. He's saying here's what good advertising is. Right. Um, but, so we're in this like we've all agreed like we're haggling over price. Like how much information is someone allowed to know, and under what circumstances can they know it? And I think it's the under what circumstances part that the tech people are mostly leaning on. But the the people who install ad blockers are leaning on the what can they know, and they've decided nothing. Go ahead. I totally <laughs> cut you off, but I had to get that in there. No, I mean, uh, the, the one other interesting note here is uh, media properties that celebrate their ads, like, say, Vogue, um, they'll thrive because the best advertising is the advertising we would miss if it was gone, the, the old Super Bowl ads of that category. Um, but what people are blocking is not Super Bowl ads. It's <laughs> no, they it's, are not. <laughs> it's the 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 erection pills that you don't want to see. <laughs> so I did have one other thing I, I really wanted to get your opinion on because I I kind of have my own feelings about this, but I mostly think you will open my mind, which is 
Do you think, whether people are aware of it or not, that part of the reason targeting ads or now with this this mobile gaming revelation, which I would love to see more people come out of the woodwork and say if this is really true, because this is just one lone weirdo as far as I Confessions know. Confessions of a... Yeah, he, he could be making it all up. It's certainly believable like any good conspiracy theory, but do you think that part of the reason people have such a visceral response to this is because the idea that they can be modeled and their behavior can be predicted is is like offensive to us psychologically like we we want to think we're special and we're more complicated and just because you know where i went to school and what race i am and what games i own you can't automatically decide what movie i'd buy oh i do want to buy that movie though <laughs> um people are fickle i mean you want the robot servant that knows exactly what to do for you but it, it's all about context it's kind of like um you know don't be unattractive, be attractive. Like <laughs> it's a little bit of that. I think a little bit of that, you know, double edged or, or I don't know how, what would you call that? That, that double standard. Of, yeah. Um, I, I want to be tracked for my benefit, but please don't be creepy about it <laughs> basically. <laughs> and creepy is, you know, a vague concept here. I really, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm super fascinated by where this is going. Like I, think uh this one article you linked to about um like how the the advertisers and publishers are no longer aligned i've never seen that take anywhere before and there's a lot of people who are afraid of content going to like google and facebook and apple and these dedicated apps where they get to decide what ads are there and they get to decide what they know about you because you're using their dedicated app and it's less controllable than the open web and and I see a lot of that fear, but I've never before, and I mean, I'm not an advertiser, so maybe this is common knowledge, but I've never before seen someone say like, yeah, these two things used, like they happen to be walking the same direction out of the building into the parking lot. Yeah. But then they got to row G and realized like, oh no, I'm actually in the other lot. And now I don't care about split. your content. I just want customers <laughs> and yeah. vice versa. <laughs> yeah, I'm... I don't I I would love to uh, here's here's what I would like. I would like to see um tracking only in places where I opted in and in a way I understand what I'm giving away. I would like to see that data used to then actually serve me ads that I care about. Like not the concert I just went to or the shoes I just bought. <laughs> yeah. Show me other shoes or other concerts. Or I'm someone like, noticed a funny product and I Googled it and now they're trying to sell me clown shoes for the rest of my life. Yeah, don't wait something that I looked at for two seconds as heavily as a thing I actually spent money on and spent days researching and reading reviews for. Like, Get better about that and maybe I will be less creeped out that you know all these things about me. And and uh, and and just the not an end because that's never going to happen since we can't agree on it. But a a major change in user hostile practices. Yeah. And this is just in in all design, but ads just really personify it so well. Yeah, they could have done so much creepy tracking if they were willing not to break the user experience for so long. <laughs> I really, true. I really think it's the the UI breaking the the hostile stuff there that is why people are like, all right, sledgehammer time. (laughs) 
It's not it's like, yeah, people are grossed out by the creepy tracking, but I really feel like that's 5% of this and it's 95%. I can't read your site and I'm angry about that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, for me, like I more or less understand what information I'm giving away and I'm mostly okay with the idea that someone can predict my behavior if they know enough about me and then say like, oh, well, you bought all these movies. We bet if we put an ad in front of you for this movie, you're likely to buy it. Like, yeah, is that kind of weird and make you philosophically question the idea of free will? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when I load The Verge with my content blocker and it loads literally in one-fourth the time, and also I can scroll down the page and it doesn't jump me back to the top because it really wants me to see an ad before I scroll down. Um, that's kind of a, a drug I'm not willing to give up anytime soon. It's a little great. So have you gone content blocker on iOS 9? I have. What are you using? It's uh, one blocker. One blocker. So I decided since I do have an iOS device that I was obligated to try this. So I actually spent a dollar, which is, uh, oh my God, we didn't even talk about that. Let's get to that in a second. That, the ethics <laughs> of that, of spending <laughs> yes. money to block the revenue yeah, so, of other sites. <laughs> yeah. So I, I bought this a dollar for this uh, crystal app, I think it's called, um, yeah. which came like highly... I was free you know, on day one. You missed the you missed the window of opportunity. Oh no! <laughs> but yeah, that you know, and it's the whole web experience in Safari because it's Safari only, not in a dedicated app, not in Chrome. Well, actually, anything using use. the Safari view going forward will also obey the right. content blockers. Um, but it's holy crap! Everything is so much faster. Yeah, so much faster. Like not like oh yeah, there's a noticeable speed. No, it's like night and day. Yeah. So uh, what do you think about paying for an ad blocker? That is weird, right? <laughs> um, I mostly try not to think about it. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's actually a problem <laughs> there. Now, if I start like paying 10 bucks a month for an ad blocker, that's getting into weird territory <laughs> right there. Well, and so this uh, brings me back around to the whole idea of Google Contributor, which... I have been like settled on is is a a step in the right direction is like a, a sensible middle ground and then uh, one of these articles we link to I think it's maybe the web should die um, oh yeah that's great he just flat out says like no oh yeah let's see um, his two points on why Google contributor are not good enough is it doesn't seem to actually do anything I still see a ton of garbage ads everywhere served to me by Google apparently Mashable accepts contributor but I hate Mashable it's a terrible repository <laughs> of clickbait for people who live in San Francisco so that that got a little uh, little editorial in the second part and then the other thing he says is it still rewards page views which was really the whole point of this rant advertising is a value extraction through page views uh, and so is Google contributor clearly the wrong kind of incentive see Mashable so his argument is anything, regardless of how you get there, if it's tied to specifically page views, because one person viewing the page a million times and a million people one time, still a million page views. Yeah. So anything that's rewarded by page views, the content type is going to shift, like you were talking about, more in the BuzzFeed direction, which is like, yeah, we're just Doritos. This is not a high-class dessert. Stuff it in your face. <laughs> just eat more, and then when you're done, eat more. So, <laughs> like, and that's, I think there's a place for that, but the problem is we're using the same funding model for the stuff in yeah. your face content as, like, the high-class 
you know, yeah. heavily produced journalism. And yeah. that's weird. It doesn't work. Well, and I, I really liked um, Marco's description of you're at a restaurant and you order the steak, but they keep bringing out other food. And like, first you got to eat this <laughs> and we'll give you your steak eventually. And then finally you get to the steak and it's overcooked and it's like got the worst sauce and it's just a piece of crap. And you're like, <laughs> I went through all that other food and then I still got like a crappy steak. And like, this is not, no, just let me buy a good steak or let me know I'm at the buffet but let's not let's not pretend something else. So do you think I'm wondering maybe part of what we're seeing is that this doesn't work at scale the way we've been lying to ourselves that it does and now we don't know what to do. And here's <laughs> here's my metaphor for that. Uh if you walked into a bookstore in the 90s when bookstores were still a thing, you could <laughs> You could go to the magazine section and there would be a couple of, you know, there's like, um, God, I'm going to blank now, but you have, you know, like higher class Disney adventure. Yeah. (laughs) No, you, you have like some higher class magazines, like your time or your, your Nat Geo and, um, which is now apparently going down the toilet. Thanks Rupert Murdoch. Like you, (laughs) you had like these higher class magazines that had a substantially higher price and a substantially smaller, uh, subscription base because they were like hitting a tighter niche. And even if that niche was just higher quality content, like that's still a kind of, yeah, a focus. We put time into this. We, we make good stuff, right? But then you had this entire other class of magazine, which was freaking garbage, and it yeah. was cheap, and they reached the widest possible tabloids. audience. Tabloids are, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a reason they can put those up there for three bucks at a grocery store checkout, because you're like, I do want a candy bar, and I do want to learn about Bat Boy, and you just <laughs> you grab those two pieces of trash in their own right, and then you put them into your cart, and you go home. But on the on the web, because we have... This, you know, we've removed all the barriers to producing things. Now, all of these people have come out of the woodwork and they're like, well, now that I don't have to own a printing shop, I want to make Time Magazine. And the rest of the world is like, but I don't want to read 20 Time Magazines. I want to read like one or two. And I'm willing to pay for like one or two. But can you find enough people who think your Time Magazine is worth paying for to sustain you? And the answer appears to be no. Yeah. Well, there's always a free alternative that may be inarguably worse, but doesn't matter because it's it's either good enough or there's so much noise that people can't distinguish anyway. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing with the, the other big problem with all this stuff is content curation. Right, it's true for movies in Netflix because you have infinite movies. It's true for music on streaming services because you have infinite music, and it's true for websites. If you have infinite websites all talking about the same or similar things, what makes one worth reading over another? But it's worse for journalism because you can't you can't own the topic you're talking about. Only certain company can make a James Bond movie. Yeah, anyone can make a spy movie, but not anyone can make a James Bond movie. Whereas if anyone wants to write about Apple, they can. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what they announced. Anyone can write about it. See, and that just brings me back to my like nihilist, Do you? who said you have a right to exist? It's like, I mean, you just think about like any movie set in like the 
the fabulous 40s or 50s where the kid goes to his dad it's probably a guy he's probably gay but they don't talk about it in the movie because it's all just stereotypes all the way down and the son is like but dad i just want to dance and the father's like no son of mine you'll work in the ford factory just like i always did and and that's like you know then the kid like decides to go out on his own and being a starving artist and the whole reason we have the stereotype of a starving artist is because those are people who put what they want to do over what will feed them yeah (laughs) and that's kind of like we're seeing on with a lot of these publications they're like this is what i want to do i deserve to do it and even though i want to say like yeah you do you you get to do whatever you want man star trek future (laughs) everyone has health care and education and food it comes magically out of a machine but we're just not there yet and until we're there i can't I don't know how to tell that person, like, you can do whatever you want. What you can't do is then get my money for it. Like, if yeah. you want to write all day and night it or sounds like a meatloaf song. <laughs> <laughs> I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. But I won't view ads. <laughs> oh, there it is. There's there's your BuzzFeed title for this. Seriously. But I mean, am, am I being am I am I being overly reductive? I just feel like that's the trade off. Like, yeah, you can yeah. be a starving artist, but starving is part of the starving artist yeah. thing. I think that's the the canon that some publishers want to turn back on readers and say, "I can't tell you you're not allowed to block ads, but I think the future you're creating is worse than what we have now." And readers right now, I think, are like, "Prove me wrong." Like, it's pretty bad now. Um, well, so. and isn't that kind of like, I mean, think about if you took away the, the inferred pronouns and you put the proper nouns into that sentence, then The Verge is, or a company like The Verge is saying, the future you are creating without The Verge is worse because it doesn't have The Verge. <laughs> like, I mean, that is literally what that statement That's is. That's how people are reacting is like, stop whining, <laughs> stop whining. No, I'm not saying that it's not whining. I'm just saying that. Of course, a future without me in it is worse. I'm not there. (laughs) Like, what entity, whether it's a person or a group of people in a company, wouldn't feel that way? What company is so benevolent that they would be like, the world would be better without me? I'm just going to off myself. Yeah, they believe so little in what they're doing. Like, yeah, they obviously think they do a good (laughs) thing, and so the world is worse without it. Right. So that it's kind of a little bit of a biased argument coming from that source. And that the thing is, they're not even necessarily wrong. Maybe the world will be way worse if we can't have The Verge and Time Magazine and The New York Times. Like, but they probably aren't making a fair judgment call. So I think one of my favorite contrarian takes on this whole thing was Paul Miller's Maybe the Web Should Die. Not because you should take it seriously and kill the web, but because (laughs) his whole point was so much about ads. I hate content. (laughs) And so um, on Twitter this week, he was jokingly creating a, a, a content blocker that would block content and it would just use a star selector to select the entire web page and display none it <laughs> i, I don't know loads super fast <laughs> i don't know if, if apple would approve that because that may actually people may not realize what they're doing and then go why is every web page nothing <laughs> but um that was one of my favorite joke takes on this and and i mean there's still some uh philosophical weight to it of like yeah that the intertwinement of publishing and ad business 
Um, when it gets really sick, if you believe, if you agree with the people saying it's gotten to kind of a sick level, um, not that they're intertwined, but the, the way this is happening in the market, um, yeah, maybe content is being infected and maybe a future where these guys kind of part ways, maybe we'll get better content because it won't be buzzfeeded. <sighs> I, I'm out of clever ideas on this. Yeah. I, this, <laughs> And I kind of prefaced this at the beginning, and I, I almost feel like a schmuck whenever I have to preface, like, this is a thing I'm thinking about, just so trolls don't say, like, oh, well, that must be your deeply held belief. But <laughs> I really don't know what the right way is on any of this, although I am fervently for taking away the user hostile stuff. Yeah. Like, I personally don't have a big problem with tracking, but... I've never heard a good defense against the unscrollable web page because there's a giant ad and the, the, the popover that wants you to subscribe before you've read anything and the, yeah. the dancing animating X you can't click on like yeah all, like, all that stuff that's not even just breaking that's designed to be hard to dismiss yeah yeah so no matter what we do with ads and tracking and all that other stuff like this to me is the non-negotiable part of it. And the only reason I'm even willing to bend on the tracking is because I think there might be a way to create a world where you have understood opt-in tracking and then other things where opting in isn't an option or it wouldn't be a good user experience like the open web. I don't want to opt in on every link I click, right? Yeah. That would be stupid. But, but I what also, if you could trust a specific advertising network that actually made it their brand to respect user experience? And then you could say any any website using that ad network is cool. Yeah, I mean... Well, but that's this, back to the whitelist kind of thing. But It is, but there's probably ways smart people can work on this. And the only glimmer of hope there is actually back in history because every web browser in, what, the last... 10 years has had a pop-up blocker not longer just, than that i think well not just in there but on by default yeah and yet when i go to like my bank is a good example like one of the the features on that website ha it uses a pop-up like a small pop-up window comes up and then you interact with it and it goes away and a thing happens i want that pop-up i asked for it so a hundred percent of pop-ups aren't being blocked it's blocking the vast, vast, vast majority of them. And turns out it, that's okay. <laughs> it turns it out does, the world moved on. <laughs> it does, but I'm just saying like there's everyone, if you say pop-ups are like, oh, pop-ups are bad. And it's like, no, pop-ups has become a pejorative, but sometimes you need another browser window to open. Though most of the time, the pop-up window is like, oh, so you're a website from the 90s and you didn't figure out how to do this with Ajax. Well, yeah. So, okay, I mean, that's another design thing. But but I do need that pop-up window there because their crappy bank website was made in the 90s and they never updated it. But if it was blocked, if all pop-ups were blocked carte blanche, then that would be bad. And yeah. just like the thing with ads, like I have no problem with the but deck ads. They're fine. That's uh, that's. I mean, people have been calling back to the pop-up situation as, you know, metaphorically similar. And I, I like... But we had to have that 100% sledgehammer before the industry would stop doing that. And so it's like, it's like, yeah, we shouldn't block all pop-ups, but they weren't going to change unless we blocked all pop-ups. Right. And I'm sure any publisher would say justifiably, 
but what publishers won't survive the transition? Yeah. You know, what publishers were relying on pop-up ads, pop-ups were blocked, and then their revenue tanked, and it tanked for just long <laughs> enough that they couldn't survive the transition. So here's my last thing I want to ask in, before we can put this to bed, unless you have something <laughs> else you want to, some other part of the axe to grind. Oh, the, but, the conversation never ends, Mike. Um, and that is, why is the sky suddenly falling? Why is it just because iOS and Apple are a lightning rod for literally everything? Um, cause, you know, there's been ad blocking browsers on both iOS and Android for years. The desktop has had plugins for this for years, decades even. And it's suddenly iOS has it and it's like the entire universe is being destroyed. <laughs> and like, are the numbers backing that up? Is it like, oh my God, iOS as a mobile platform somehow decides the fate of the entire publishing industry? Or is it just weirdly somehow Apple's lightning rod of undue attention on everything they do? I'm, I'm going to say it is the... You know the the price demand graph where it's like supply and and demand and where they meet is the ideal price. I think Apple does a really good job of entering a space right before everybody is right going to be inflection point. <laughs> yeah, so I think and not always. I mean, they did do the Newton, but <laughs> I think I think they they're pretty good about hitting that time, which is why everyone always craps on them for being like, "Oh, you didn't make that up." And it's like, "No, but we did it at the right time." <laughs> and we're taking all your money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, there's been statistics that more mobile browsing happens on iOS devices than on Android devices in the US. In the US, that's fair, but most of these companies are US publishers, particularly for me because I can only read in English, so Yeah. I, yes, we are filter bubbling down to America and Canada, um, and I guess America's Western Europe. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, there's been you know some data that's shown that you know this there's a lot happening on iOS. Um, even though Android has overtaken them generally, I think there's a different kind of user that can afford a nine hundred dollar phone versus one who buys like a fifty dollar phone. So yeah, there there's they do control a certain sector of the market in this particular way that a company like The Verge, who talks about Apple and who is trying to sell ads to people who have disposable income, would be more affected by than someone who writes like, you know, a foodie blog, where it's like <laughs> everyone eats, so anyone could stumble across <laughs> my foodie blog. Um, so I think there, Apple got into this at a time when uh, a lot of tech people were like reaching the fed up point and the portion of the general public that is aware of this problem is larger than it's ever been. Yeah. So you have a super high profile company doing something uh, in the name of users, which right, like we've talked about other Apple stuff where it's like in the name of users privacy. So like high profile company doing this thing for the the little guy that's, uh, seems to be in line with the trend they're setting and you have a larger base ever of people who are aware of this problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's going to get a lot it's a of confluence people. of events. Yeah. Oh, and oh my God. See, this is why this conversation can never end because here's, here's the, the crazy. Everything is a remix. What do you have in all of this going on? If not, content waiting to be written and ads waiting to be served against that content if you're the verge and apple your freaking bread and butter comes out with this new 
anything, of course you're going to write about it. <laughs> and if that thing happens to be highly contentious where you can get some of them sweet, sweet hate comments, yeah, of course you're going to write about that, regardless yeah. of how you actually feel. And then on top of it, they actually <laughs> have a dog in this fight? Like, yeah, the sky is falling because I think with a topic like this, the sky is either perfectly fine or it has fallen. When the sky is falling, it's usually dropping money to publications. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Th- oh, man. This. Uh, put a bow on it. <laughs> all righty. All righty. Well, if you have passionate thoughts that were wrong or right about any of this or all the other people we've quoted, and you just want to add to the noise of everyone yelling about ads, um, you can definitely uh, tweet at us. Where We're both on Twitter. I'm at Medwards Music and Lions. You are. At Lions in Beta. And lest I forget, even though we said it during the episode, you can find show notes and links to all these articles at sunriserobot.net slash flipping table slash 85. Um, and while you're there, you might as well subscribe to our show if you're not already. Um, you can use the iTunes button or the RSS button on your mobile device. And if you need a suggestion for a podcast app, you could use Podcast Addict or Pocket Cast on Android or iOS. Or you could use Overcast.fm, which is my favorite. Um, they're both they're all great apps. Check them out. And then uh, you can search for Flipping Tables or Sunrise Robot, and you should find our shows. Um, you can support us directly. Uh, we have some great supporters that help us keep the lights on and the tapes rolling. We don't use tapes. That, that was a metaphor. Um, <laughs> if you go to patreon.com slash sunrise robot, uh, you can pledge monthly dollars to support the network, which produces over six different shows. And uh, Flipping Tables is but one of them. And depending on your level of support, uh, you'll get your, a shout out on each episode. And uh, we want to give special thanks to Bruce Edwards, Matt Mariner, Sean Byrne, and Andreas Langa. We love you guys. We will never ad block you. No, we'll see you next week. I'll I'll see them next week.